Hey everyone, it's Tom Kradza, and on this episode of the Your Life, Your Term show, we talk to the two guys behind the Twitter account, WTF underscore 1971. And that Twitter account got, I, I guess it's over the last two or three years, it really got some attention. And the reason it got some attention, if you're not familiar with that date, 1971, that is the time where President Nixon took the US dollar off its gold backing. And in 1971, he temporarily, and I'm saying that in air quotes, he temporarily closed the gold window, which meant that countries all around the world that had accumulated a lot of American dollars could no longer come to the US and say, hey, I'd like to exchange these American dollars for the gold that it's backed by. They were starting to deplete American gold reserves, and the US said, whoa, 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 we can't have this happen anymore, and Nixon closed the gold window. That was kind of the birth a few years later of the petrodollar system and the birth of debt being the global, global reserve asset instead of gold. So it was just an in economics, that was just a massive change in how our money system works. And what these guys have done on this Twitter account, they've done an excellent job about picking economic data and analyzing it from 1971 to the present. And then from 1971 to the previous, you know, 30, 40, 50 years. And you can see what has happened in the economy really obviously in their charts from 1971. And they go on to just ask a bunch of you know obvious questions of like, why did this all happen? And it all happens because our monetary policy changed. So we get these guys on the podcast to talk. Their names are Ben Prentice and Heavily Armed Clown. We will share their Twitter handles at the end of the episode. And we talk a little bit about WTF 1971, so you know their Twitter account and why they started it. But then I just ask them, what do they think the economy is going to look like in the future? So if they've been looking at the past so much, what are they going to look about? Look, what is the economy going to look like in the future? And we get their thoughts around that. So we had a kind of an open discussion. We share some books that they like, and just had a talk about what we see going forward. It inevitably inevitably leads to Bitcoin as well. So if you're into this stuff, we think you'll like this show. And if you are listening to this and you are trying to add some real estate to your portfolio and you're not sure where to start, you don't know if it's the right time, you don't know if it makes sense for you, and you just want some more education, you can visit rockstarinnercircle.com to get access to the different videos that we're putting out and reports and access to our books and classes and podcasts like this. What we're trying to do is bring education to everyone so that you can understand how to best protect yourself financially, you know, going forward for yourself, your family, and all the rest of us can protect ourselves how we see fit as well. And that's why we're trying to put all this information on that website. So you can go to rockstarinnercircle.com for all of that stuff. That's enough with this intro. Let's get on with the show. Are you ready to live life on your terms? Is it time to take charge? Real estate, business building, the economy, health and nutrition, and more. It's the Your Life, Your Term Show with Tom and Nick Carazza. Are you ready? Let's go. Okay, we are live with Ben and Hack. I feel like I'm not pronouncing it right, though. Is it hack? That's what you go by, hack. Yeah, that's probably I what I, most I, people I, know me as. Okay, <laughs> I feel like that's like, a, you know, in Top Gun, when everybody has like a call name or something, is that, is that what I'm talking about? A call yeah, name? Is that what I you mean, call those things? Call sign. Yeah, call sign, thank you. Is, right? I mean, on the internet, right? When you've got like a, an anonymous moniker, I guess yeah. it is a call sign. Yeah, 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 yeah. I like it. I, yeah, I feel like I need now. I need a call sign, but I'm pretty public with my name, so it'll be <laughs> But anyway, yeah. guys, thank you. Yeah, thank you both. Thank you, Ben and Hack, for doing this. I just want to kick off. Like, I, I think a, a bunch of people listening to this are going to know 
about your Twitter handle specifically and the charts you can put out, but I know you put a newsletter. I don't know. Are you still doing a podcast as well? Um, no, we don't really produce like a ton of content on a regular basis for, yeah, okay. for that type of stuff. Ben and I are, are pretty busy people. So that was, that was kind of this just is like a- some experimentation and trying to get some information out there, but we don't do it. We don't do it on a regular basis. Okay, so occasionally great. I'll publish uh, some stuff on the blog. Or like got it. For okay, got it. Yeah, I was going through your stuff. I was trying to figure out your pattern for releasing content. Um, so I, that that helps. So yeah, can uh, you guys just when I have time? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. Can you guys just share? You know, like how did this get started? Who are you guys? And how did this get started? This whole thing about you putting out data to kind of illustrate a certain year in time. Can you give us the backstory a little bit? Because then I have some questions for you. Yeah, go ahead, Ben. You you can tell the origin story. Um, Yeah, so like basically Hack and I are just monetary nerds, right? Bitcoin uh, taught us that we didn't know anything about how the system worked. And it led us to just try to figure out how it worked in the past, right? Because if Bitcoin is so much better, right? Like we're Bitcoin guys, right? I, I know your audience isn't Bitcoin guys as much, but we are. And we were trying to like, you know, you have to compare Bitcoin to what the current system is, if you're going to say it is, it, you know, as good, better, worth having, whatever. So that led us to under, you know, like if, if like Bitcoin is like gold, right. is like a comparison a lot of people make. So then what, you know, what, what about the gold standard? Why, why do we go off it? When, you know, how did that happen? All that stuff that led our rabbit hole um, took us down like, you know, Wikipedia pages and we'd start finding these charts and stuff. And it's like, it, you know, the again, if, if the hypothesis is that Bitcoin is better or and that gold, the gold standard was better, right? You talk about you know central banking on your show, then if we when we went off the gold standard in 1971, things should have gotten worse. And like literally, if you go look at the Wikipedia pages around uh, the Nixon shock and uh, you know, uh, Bretton Woods agreements, you can some of the charts that we have near the top of that page are directly from those pages, and that kind of like led us to kind of ask the question, like. Hmm, I wonder if there are more. And we kind of like dug and found a few more of these things. And, and Hack and I like to um, argue on with people on Twitter. I don't know if you've ever seen the XKCD meme where he's like, um, honey, I can't come to bed. There's somebody wrong in the internet, right? So like <laughs> yeah. we, we used to do that, you know, with Bitcoin, you know, like the conversations, you know, with, um, you know, fiat maxis and all these, you know, Keynesians essentially. And we would show them the charts, right? And we would like dig through our phones and found these charts. And like one day Hack just like, um, was like, what if you, we throw these up? Because we started to amass like a collection of these charts. And it's like, if you draw an arrow on all these charts, seems to be this inflection point in the data in 1971, which agrees with our previous hypothesis that going off the gold standard kind of took us off the rails. And and that's really it. I mean, he, he had the idea to throw, ask a question at the top and just put the charts in zero explanation. And, and that meme has been very successful to like, kind of lead people on a, um, a path of, to trying to figure out for themselves, like what, what really happened. Right. And it, not even telling them it's the gold standard. And it's funny because a lot of gold bugs actually like the site too. Um, but you know, it is what it is. It's just a meme. <laughs> yeah. It was definitely rooted in like, we didn't start it out like, Oh, we want this to be this big thing that everybody talks about. It was like, how can I equip myself to better win arguments on the internet? That was exactly how it started. Um, and it was like, if I just put all, cause most people, they don't spend a lot of time. They tend to be very rhetoric driven. Um, and it's generally a waste of time to engage with like a lot of people on the internet in like a dialectic conversation where you're 
passing arguments back and forth to try and establish like a logical baseline where you can have like a, a reasonable debate where you're not arguing over the meanings of words and stuff like that. Um, it's almost impossible. So like, it's basically just a, a rhetoric tool, like to, that you can just show somebody and just like browbeat them over the head with your, with whatever, um, like all this data that you have in your head that you're like, if I could just put this in your brain, then we could at least get you closer to um, where we, you and I can have a conversation about these topics of monetary history that most people uh, entirely ignore. Because you guys went down this rabbit hole and um, kind of admire you for, for doing that. I think a lot of people don't do that. You guys went down, it sounds like pretty hard. What, where are you today? Like I, 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 we don't have to rehash it all. A big part of our audience is going to understand some of the economic silliness over the last, you know, since 1971, but where, where do you guys sit today? So now you discovered Bitcoin, you understand coming off the gold standard, you know, kind of did what it did. Income hasn't kept up with asset inflation and all this kind of nonsense destruction of the middle class. We actually wrote a report called the destruction of the middle class. (laughs) <laughs> that basically, you know, we didn't look at the data in exactly the same way as you. We just looked at it kind of over time. We didn't pick 1971. We're like, look, look what's happening. Like what's happening in the US? Look what's happening in Canada. Like it's it's just crazy. Where do you guys sit today? Like, are we headed on a path that things will get materially, I can't even speak materially worse um, over the next few years? And then do we come out of this? Like, what, what, What's your thinking today? Where Where are we headed? So I know you've always been looking back at 1971. I guess now I want to ask you, where are we in like 2031? Where, where do you guys feel we're headed? I'm I curious. think if you study the history of monetary economics, you'll find that um, monetary policy is by and large, maybe with a few exceptions, always downstream of fiscal policy. So in layman's terms, what that means is the more money the government spends, the more they have to debase the currency because the government ultimately has to pay for the things that it purchases Uh, and governments don't produce anything. So they have to do it in one of several ways. They can either raise money through taxes, which tends to be very offensive to the constituency. They can borrow the money from investors, private lenders, central banks, um, or and or rather they can debase the monetary supply and issue new notes into circulation and uh, take advantage of that seniorage that they have by being the first ones to spend that freshly printed currency. Um, Historically, they've engaged in combinations of all three, but what you see now is really, especially since uh, 1971, like post Bretton Woods era, um, a massive acceleration of fiscal deficit. And that fiscal deficit is driving uh, monetary expansion that I would say is fairly unprecedented simply because the U.S. dollar is global reserve currency. Um, and all of these little microcosms of hyperinflation that we have throughout history are really a drop in the bucket compared to, um, the, I would say, like the total, the real value of dollars in circulation like and what they can purchase and the amount that that currency supply is increased on a yearly basis. I think that we've only ever seen hyperinflation in like very controlled not controlled, but in microcosms, right? In like small nation states, um, but never on a global level like this. And it's playing out a lot differently than, you know, Weimar, Germany, hyperinflation, for example, where they they printed all this currency and the price of shoes went from two marks to 20 million marks in like two years or whatever. Um, things are playing out differently just because we're on the global stage right now and there's a lot more wealth involved. There's a lot more variables at play, um, but, you, you can't look at the fiscal policy and say 
that you're going to expect anything is going to change. Like, uh, I think the United States government just unanimously pushed through, what was it, like a $2 trillion spending bill? Um, just, it's like throwing money into the wind. And, and, and it, there's no um, plan to put in place any type of like regulatory control on the government's ability to just infinitely expand the debt uh, until they can't. And they will continue to do so as long as they have the tools to manipulate the monetary environment and, and allow themselves to do it. Yeah, it's funny because, you know, he Hack mentioned there's like two tools, like they have the fiscal and then they, they can so they can issue debt or they can um, they can deficit spend. And, and then he kind of corrected himself. He, he kind of tripped up and then he kind of said, but they're like. These things are like so combined now because of the incentives of fiat money that essentially there isn't much difference between the two. Um, and it's, it's like something I've debated back and forth with, with Hack, actually. But like it, it, the, the point is that because of this way the system is designed, uh, the incentives are such that the government is spending the way it is. Right. So it's not just like we've you know, it's again, it's like WTF happened in 1971. It's like, did we all just get worse at managing money? No, the incentives changed. I think that's the biggest point. So um, I'm going to try to like get to actually answer your question, but like this laying the fundamentals for our reasoning, I think is probably important, but that, you know, you can't really change that. You can't go back. You can't convince people to now use austerity to, um, to be smart, right. To like not spend too much. Um, and, and on top of that, like, it's not just, it's not even a power, a problem of willpower. It's that the system is like, has built this itself as house of cards where, because of the inflation that ex that was extant, you know, even for 200 years or whatever, there's, there's all kinds of different inflationary and deflationary vectors. But like because of the inflation that we've experienced the last few centuries, that has led to us taking on more and more debt and having less and less savings just on every single level of society from down from the individual to the corporation to the government. We all have literally too much debt. We can't pay it off. There's more debt than there is money. All this stuff. That that problem is so impossible to solve, um, you know, without just like absolute catastrophic blood in the streets, um, just worse than 1929, Great Depression stuff that that there isn't like even, you know, even me sitting around saying, here's my I have the big red button. I can change any rule. I can change every government. Like there is still no easy way to solve the problem is the liquidation of as, as Hack would say, the liquidation of malinvestment must come. And that's very painful. Um, so as far as like, where are we going, right? Like, how does this play out? Now we have Bitcoin, it exists, right? It, it's, it's a technology, it's out there, you can't get rid of it. Um, and you have this government beast that has to continuously expand debt, expand money, otherwise the system collapses. Like 2008, as soon as they stop lending money, boom, it collapses, right? Like, that's, that's the fear. Mm -hmm. um, the way I really see it playing out is Bitcoin has to get bigger. It has to get bigger before it can get bigger. It has to build liquidity before large actors like like governments can start to use it, like huge corporations, like, you know, entire countries can start, you know, El Salvador is is, is absolutely tiny country and they barely use it. Um, it's, it's Bitcoin is still so small. It, it's getting significantly bigger. It's, you know, if you count base money, it's it's, it's like it was in the, um, I actually don't know where it is now, but it's in the range of between like the uh, seventh and 12th largest currency in the world from a base money standpoint. Hmm. Um, so it, it's, it's not, it's not tiny, but the, the problem is it doesn't have the liquidity. People don't transact with it. You know, like mm -hmm. in the United States, for example, people don't transact with it 
I think the main reason is because of the tax reporting burden. Uh, otherwise, I would use it more, you know, at least the Bitcoiners that exist, right? I'm not saying the rest of the people. Um, but, but money has to be transacted all the time in order for it to have the liquidity of money. It's this medium of exchange, right? Widespread medium of exchange. George Selgin would be um, very happy to hear me say this right now. But the point is, I, I think that, that just keeps happening. Bitcoin just keeps getting bigger. Look at what's happening in Nigeria and Africa and, and you know, Argentina and Lebanon right now. Did you see what just happened in Lebanon this morning? There's a headline that said the Lebanon Central Bank comes out and says, you know, within the month, we're going to devalue our currency 90%. Take 90% of your savings. I, this is absolutely unfathomable to folks in the West. Take 90% of your US dollar savings or your Canadian loony, uh, whatever you cook, Canadian bucks, what you call them. Sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> take, take 90% of that and just wipe it out over the next two weeks. Like that, I literally, I cannot even imagine this. And I think about this stuff all the time. So Bitcoin is going to increasingly be a tool for folks like that. And, and, and what's great about Bitcoin is it gets bigger, it gets more liquid, it gets less volatile. And a lot of the criticisms that people, oh, well, I can't hold it, it's too volatile. What do I do? Mm -hmm. My stocks are super volatile, but don't worry about that. I can't hold that Bitcoin stuff. That becomes less and less of a problem. And, and the rest of the fiat world gets kind of crazier and crazier. I just, I think, I, I think it's like this, the Trojan horse, it just kind of, it gets bigger and governments continue to laugh at it and they mess around with their silly CBDC experiments while, while Bitcoin just becomes completely unstoppable. And um, I, I don't know what the transition, you know, the, the okay, so then transition I'll, looks like. But so then I just want to throw something out at you. This, I, I'm interested in your thoughts then on this. Um, first, I just want to say that the saddest thing about the whole system for me right now is that we have so many smart people engaged in activities that they shouldn't be engaged in because they are trying to protect their wealth. Like if you just look at the financialization of the economy, there's so many people we could even take our own business. I mentioned to you, we help people buy rental properties. Why are myself and my brother, and there's a big team of us at Rockstar, all focused on this? Can you imagine the productive enhancements to the economy? I'm not saying we're the smartest people by any means, but if we weren't all engaged in this activity where we're constantly trying to help people protect their wealth and all these brains and minds and human labor were put towards, I don't know, more efficient energy creation or better health for us all or food production and all these other things. Like it just astonishes me that so many of us are engaged in activities that we shouldn't really be engaged in that are a byproduct or a second order effect of the system that we're in. It's kind of like, it, it, it's, it's a little bit sad. You know, how many human brain, how many people in the U S just go into like wall street into like the financial industry and really like what the heck is going on? So I have a question for you. Sometimes I think Americans don't see the inevitability of Bitcoin as well as people outside of the U S and I can just tell, you know, just on Bitcoin Twitter, you see some people arguing about, you know, the US dollar and this and this this and that. But to me, it seems almost inevitable that the US dollar is going to just lose its power. And I think maybe the US dollar goes out with more of a whimper and not a bang like I thought originally it might go out. And as evidence of that or, or, or a piece of information to present to you guys, I don't know if you know that Ghana recently said, they're going to not use their American dollars because they need their American dollars to pay their bills. They're not going to use American dollars to buy oil anymore. They're actually going to use gold. And I think it's two or three weeks ago, the first shipment, uh, like a, you know, a big boat came up and uh, the last stop of this boat was Russia and they paid for their oil and gold. 
And to me, that's the sign that the US dollar is just maybe over the next 10 years and 20 years, as Bitcoin gets the liquidity that Ben, that you say it kind of needs, the US dollar just in an equivalent fashion just loses its kind of footing globally. And it's not this like, I always thought it would just like be this hyperinflation moment where it's like America would just print, you know, and it goes straight up and it become worthless almost in 24 months or something. And I, I kind of, some part of me, maybe it's wrong. I, part of me wants to see this. <laughs> I know that's like bad. And I know the pain, like, I know that's not a good scene, but a part of me is like, just like, ah, just let it go. <laughs> but maybe it's just something like that country over country over time stops using the US dollar for, for as much as it is, the US dollar loses dominance in the world because of that. Maybe military dominance uh, as well because of that, I'm not quite sure, but definitely it's financial dominance and Bitcoin slowly uh, gets more and more liquidity and Bitcoin's just kind of naturally used as a better form of gold when people realize, oh, you don't have to do this gold thing to buy the oil. I can just use Bitcoin instead. It's like just way better and we can settle every month in Bitcoin instead of settling in gold. Um, and maybe there's just this kind of slow transition. What do you think of that? Could we see a slow transition over the next 10 and 20 years or, or a mile to lunch here? I think that the, the Roman empire, certainly, you know, it didn't collapse in a day, uh, it collapsed slowly over like 200 years. And along that time period, they slowly debased the Roman denarius down to, you know, worthlessness. Um, so much so that like they could no longer pay their soldiers and the empire just kind of ceased to be what it once was. Um, I think that you're watching that happen in real time uh, in the United States now. And, and I think there's probably a lot of reasons that America's Americans can't see or won't see um, the slow motion empire collapse. Uh, and, and those issues are their own. You know, they're probably mostly personal. They're, they're largely ideological. Uh, cognitive dissonance is a painful beast that's often difficult to wrestle with. Uh, so good luck with that, everyone. Um, <laughs> my really technical explanation for what's going to happen, have you ever seen Pirates of the Caribbean? Yeah. Okay, you know that scene where, where Johnny Depp is in that really beat up little dinghy and it's taking on water and he's like trying to get to the dock, trying to get to the dock and it, he's like very close to the dock and the ship is like completely underwater and he's standing on the mast and in the second the ship like is about to go under he just steps just right onto walk. the dock and keeps walking yeah that's going to be the global transition to bitcoin um that's what the optimist in me says and that's my my technical explanation for how all of the macro is going to play out uh we're literally going to be right on the precipice of of drowning and then we're just going to step right on to the next system mm -hmm. and uh carry on as business as usual except in this world uh the free market has taken back control of the cost of capital and like you said earlier like we won't live in a world where money is cheaper than cheap and we won't have to engage in all of this nonsense where we're chasing after the money spigot and investing in um whatever brings us as close as we can possibly get to the asset inflation trough and instead we'll be putting our productive efforts and our savings towards um fruitful, uh, productive, and profitable ventures that benefit humanity uh, because they are profitable in a free and open marketplace rather than uh, getting us closer to the money printer. I like it. And, um, can, can I add some real quickly? Oh yeah, of course. I, I, I can kind of see um, a path for either, either kind of scenario, these you know, hyperinflation-y type scenarios and the you know, kind of stepping off the boat 
smooth landing, I suppose. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, I like that visualization. Yeah, yeah. Um, because you know, the, when when you see actual hyperinflation, um, I always say this, but it's it's important to remind folks that like real hyperinflation only comes when there's a complete loss in faith in the currency. You look at you can look at somewhere like um, Venezuela, for example, and the government was literally just printing money like real Jerome Powell behind the you know, like that and, and spending it, right? And just like buying everybody, you know, groceries and all this, like it was, it's just Panama. But the US is not doing that, right? I mean, maybe we're, we're kind of creeping towards some kind of more, you know, socialism and more welfare and stuff. But like, I, I don't see us literally going through the Maduro, it, maybe not yet, maybe it gets worse, but I don't personally see that happening right now. Um, so th- that that case is is, is rare, but there is the possibility that kind of just with the global connected world, you know, people kind of realize that Bitcoin's happening and that happens in a, a quick, in a quick way. I, again, I don't think that that's likely that all of a sudden everybody's like, I don't want dollars and they just buy Bitcoin. Like, and then Bitcoin goes to a million dollars, like in a week. I don't see that happening. It could, um, or $10 million, right? Like I, do. I think it's going to happen. It, it could. Oh, I, it, oh. it could. I, I'm presenting the uh, kind of the slightly other side of the case is that um, as I think if it happens more slowly, um, mm-hmm. that as you pay off dollars, uh, as you pay off dollar denominated debt, you actually destroy um, dollar denominated credit money. Um, and that is actually deflationary. So if people slowly transition away from the dollar right towards gold, towards uh, a multipolar currency world, I, I it's, it's hard for me to see the world moving to other fiat currencies uh, in, in a world where we have Bitcoin, but maybe in the interim, as Bitcoin gets bigger, you see that. But regardless, the point is like, if, if we move away from the dollar, essentially like there, there are inflationary and deflationary vectors. That's all I'm trying to say is that it, it, yeah. it's, it's, it's hard to know how things will happen. Agreed. Agreed. It is interesting to see the liquidity of Bitcoin to your, Ben, to your point earlier, increased like with things like Nostra that I didn't even know about, you know, I don't know, four weeks ago. And now, you know, there's like lightning invoices popping up on this distributed decentralized social media platform. I don't even know if I'm describing it properly. And so the liquidity, the liquidity could kind of just show up like, you know, like chat GBT, GPT kind of came out of almost nowhere. Like we, you know, AI was advancing and all of a sudden this website comes up and then everybody was like using it overnight, including my son and all his friends at university. <laughs> their essays and everything on all this kind of stuff. I don't know if I should be saying that or not, but that's what did happen. <laughs> and I just wonder if there's a moment where it's like creeps and there's just a little bit more and then hack to your point. Like it's just like, Boom. It's just the switch. It's just fascinating to me, but just hearing what you guys are saying to me, I'm sitting here thinking about YouTube and it's like, how long have you guys been into Bitcoin? Is this something you discovered like three or four years ago or longer? Or... About four years ago. Heard about okay. it really early on, but we didn't okay. actually get into it until um, probably the, the 2017 bubble, right? Yeah. Ben? Got yeah. it. Got it. But if, so if you think about it then and what people were talking about Bitcoin in 2017 or in 2015, they probably weren't having the conversations that we're having just now in 2023 of like, oh, how's this transition going to be? Almost like we're taking it for granted. Like, listen, the transition's happening. Like, how is it going to be? So in another five, if that was five years ago, I'm just thinking in the next five years, like, where is our conversation going to be more then? Right. Because that's a pretty big change from well, 2017 to, to, to 2023. 
to be fair, both of both Hack and I have been this bullish for quite a while. Although yeah. <laughs> I, I do agree that we have changed maybe the way that we're saying it uh, over time. Yeah, but. maybe there's more of us, more of us like on board with you having those conversations now. So here's the thing: um, technology, uh, particularly some of the most prolific technologies of the last century, they are exponential. Um, in terms of the way that they're adopted. So the reason for that is because if the only two people in the world have a telephone, you and me, Tom, we can only call each other, right? So our network is only as good as the toolbar connections. But if Ben were to get a telephone, now the three of us can call each other, right? So Ben benefits by being the third person to come into that network, mm. Ben is joining a better network than you and I joined when we set it up together, right? And now let's bring a fourth person in. Um, now they are even getting an even better deal than Ben because they're connected to all three of us that are already plugged into this network. And that's why these types of technologies, they follow exponential adoption curves. That's why, you know, as people adopted things like electricity, like the more and more people that use it, the more and more electrical connections that there were, the more and more appliances that were produced that used electricity, the more and more people benefited. The more and more people that got televisions in their houses, the more and more uh, TV networks there were, the more and more people benefited from access to that new technology. Same with the internet, same with computers, it goes on and on and on. So we're not just talking about, um, somebody didn't just invent like a new piece of paper that we can trade around in an analog world to, uh, you know, distribute our, our efforts to ledger humanity's value calculation. Um, Bitcoin is an exponential technology and it's a network. So every new entrant that, that joins Bitcoin, you might think if you're coming into Bitcoin at like $25,000, you're like, oh, I've missed the boat. Uh, that's not the point. Yes, there is like speculative gain to be made in terms of like the token of Bitcoin, but Bitcoin itself is a monetary network, an exponentially growing monetary network that every late entrant to that network benefits more um, than the earlier entrants in the sense that they're more, they're connected to a bigger, better network than the earlier participants. The earlier participants are rewarded for being there earlier in terms of the speculative gain on the token, but uh, any late entrant like to the network itself is benefiting from the exponential increase. Uh, and, and what you see with these technologies throughout history is that they follow S-curves in adoption. So like at the beginning, it, it, it looks a little rocky, everybody's a little skeptical, and then all of a sudden everybody uses it. It's just like you said with the mm -hmm. GPT thing, like if you were following AI for the last 20 years, GPT-3 did not come out of nowhere. But if you aren't paying attention to AI and suddenly everybody's using it, because why wouldn't you use it? Who doesn't use it to write their term papers? Um, there you go. I mean, that, that's an example of an S-curve adoption. And I think that Bitcoin, people drastically underestimate the magnitude to which Bitcoin is changing and will continue to change the world because money is one half of every transaction. And everybody needs it and everybody uses it. Even if they don't understand it, they don't know why they need it and why they use it, they do and they will. And they will opt into better technologies and they will do it at an exponential rate. And Bitcoin is a deflationary asset. So there's only so much of it to go around. So the fiat denominated price has to go up uh, drastically, especially as the S-curve adoption happens. Okay, so you guys must've chatted about this, just seeing you two, how deep you guys think about this stuff. How does it change the world then? What do you think? Let's just assume, like, because to me, I, I foresee a pretty bright future. It might be pretty rocky between here and that bright future. But what do you, where, what do you guys think? How, how does it change the world? I, I heard, I think, Francis Poulet, I think that's his name, the founder of Bull Bitcoin. 
talking to John Vallis recently, and he said that Henry Ford changed the, the literal physical world with his invention of the car because the invention of the car actually made roads and highways. So like his idea for, for the car actually changed the physical world. And I never really thought about that way. I thought that was a really cool way to think about how ideas can actually shape physical reality, right? He came and created this car, it changed the physical world. How do you guys think Bitcoin will change the world? What, what do you foresee? You guys must have these conversations and I want to know about them. <laughs> what, are you, what are you guys doing? What are you guys saying to each other back and forth? We, we actually, we use the chat like pretty much every day and, and we, we hammered these ideas so hard yeah. that, that most of like what we say, we just kind of already kind of know, but like, uh, yeah, I, the, I think the, the world as we know it today is, is built in, in such a way, like we, we enjoy so many um, luxuries or, you know, at, look around everything in your house is built from specialization and, and, and mutually beneficial exchange. And we have increasingly digital economy and increasingly digital lives, right? Like right now, this meeting that we're having is, is literally on the internet. Mm. We've never met each other in person before. Being able to transact value with anybody in anywhere in the world at any time, and almost costlessly, um, infinitely, uh, programmatically, like uh, open source, you know, innovation on the actual medium of exchange itself. Um, you know, you're like you mentioned, Noster uh, will infinitely expand our capacity to have mutually beneficial exchange and pr just propel humanity into the future. Because, uh, you know, I'll, I, I know the angle that you were probably thinking when you asked the question is more along the lines of reducing the malinvestment, reducing the financialization. That's all true, too. Um, I just think like I was trying to like draw another thread here, too, that's just like humanity will be able to exchange value with whoever they want over the internet, the way that we exchange ideas now uh, at an increasingly mm. rapid, uh, you know, increase, in, like it's, it's going to like, like kind of saying exponentially increasing, we, we're going to exchange value. That's, that's all. And it's, it sounds so simple at the, the, you know, when you say it out loud, but it's, I just think it's just completely changed. It's going to change all the incentives, uh, everything. It's so hard to transact with somebody like in Africa or whatever, you know, like. That's well, uh, you know what, just, just you saying this, I feel like it's really going to change things because, for example, we have a condo in Croatia on the coast of the Adriatic Sea, and we're in the middle of just getting some custom mill work put together. There are my cousins helping us out, bringing the contractor in and to pay that contractor, I can't tell you how difficult it is. I have to go to the bank here. You know, we all know the wire story, but like, I basically have to like beg for my bank here to wire money to Croatia. I am Canadian dollars. I have to wire in euros until this year. They actually used the Kuna as the currency there. So then they had to take the euros and change it to Kuna, take it out of the bank. They don't use bank drafts there, take it out of the bank and then like pay this, you know, drive to the bank, get that, then pay the contractor. Who knows? He probably owes somebody, some other country euros. And it's like, when I can just pay that invoice directly to that contractor like that, what does that do for that guy's family? What does that do for the next time I want to hire somebody? It becomes much easier because to your point of the way we transact, like through Zoom, it's so easy. Now I could hire that contractor so much easier because I can just like on signal, send them a message or whatever it is, send them some money. And now I'm in interacting and dealing with people 
and all those barriers are gone. Kind of like Zoom is doing this for communication. To your point, when I can transact in value like that, I really think we are underestimating what that does to the fabric of the entire globe. And I know you guys are, that's what you're hinting at, I think. And it's going to be fascinating to see, um, you know, what happens. I want, I want to change our discussion a little bit. When people ask you about Keynesian economics or Austrian economics, because I get asked that sometimes, what do you tell people? Like for me, my, my study, and I don't think it's as in depth as, as yours perhaps, but my study of Austrian economics makes me conclude, oh, that's like just economics. <laughs> like that's like, to me, economics and this Keynesian stuff. So all this like other kind of weird, weird top-down approach. How do you guys address that when you're talking to your friends? I, I bet you Clown has a long answer for this. So I'm going to do a really short one. <clears throat> just tell them to read Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt, because the entire book is just a systematic uh, dismantling of Keynesian logical fallacies that are, are the base layer of Keynesian logic, that they're fallacies. So that just destroys it. Ben, repeat the book name, please. Uh, Economics in One Lesson by Henry Hazlitt. Thank you. Great book. Um, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> Ben's probably right. I could probably go on about this one. Uh, but it's really like it kind of comes back to why we're here to talk to you in the first place is because, uh, you know, I, I don't I don't find a lot of enjoyment in casting pearls before swine. So and I don't mean that in like a derogatory way by any means. Uh, but it, it's it's impossible to have a conversation. It's really, really difficult to have a conversation with someone unless it's like in the sense where there's like established authority and, and you're teaching. It's really hard to have a conversation with somebody that isn't on the same level of understanding on a particular topic. Mm -hmm. And most people just they don't they don't care about economics. And that's fine. You know, like that's just that's just the way it is. So but to get into like heated debates with people that don't know anything about economics over economics is just a waste of everyone's time. So that's why I think like tools like our website are just useful pieces of rhetoric because they redirect the conversation to um, kind of like opening that part of your brain that makes you more receptive to new ideas because it's rhetoric and, and doing it in a way that's like creative and, and gets you to consciously ask the question in your own mind, wait, what did happen in 1971? Instead of bringing all of this preconceived notion that you have to the conversation and like trying to be right and prove the other person wrong, let's just ignore all that. Let's not do that. Like instead of me and you having an argument at a party over a few beers about whether or not we actually need inflation yeah. and me walking away with a headache, yeah. you know, I'll just show you this website and ask you the question, Hey, what do you think happened in 1971? And if you're honest with yourself, you know, most people will look at that and say, Oh, it, it was capitalism or whatever. We've seen it all. We've seen all the explanations, but um, you know, like a third of people will say, you know, I don't know. I'm not sure. And, and, and they're going to be curious and they're going to walk away with that, with a, with a newfound desire to understand mm. this phenomenon. Um, and, and that's really who, who we're going after are the people that are willing to stop and ask the question, uh, because you got to ask the right question to get the right answer, right? You, you can't just give people the right answers because they won't know what to do with them. Yeah. Um, when you guys started putting up all these charts, has there been a, a, an epic battle with a certain economist or someone who's kind of come back to you that kind of stands out for you guys? I'd imagine there has been. Has there been one? No, they, they have no. no legs to stand on. Oh, really? Oh, so <laughs> no, no, no. So absolutely crushed. Nobody has absolutely not the, the absolute closest that we've been to anybody like actually trying to like, quote unquote, debunk us is um, like pseudo economists on Reddit just 
doing what they do. You know how those people just debunk everything. Um, their experts come in and just debunk everything. But the closest thing that we've had, like to someone actually reaching out to us and saying like, hey, I'm going to expose you guys as frauds was someone claiming that we were anti-Semites and that our entire website was based around the premise of um, trying to get people to hate Jews. That's, oh, wow. they're not sending their best. Yeah, yeah, got it. Okay. So then let me ask you this. What has been, has there been one chart in particular? The one I like, there's so many, but you know, you're, you're the, the one that you share, I think you've shared it a few times, the productivity versus compensation chart. You know that chart? <laughs> the most controversial one. <laughs> I like that one. Um, is there one that, what are your, fa- let me just ask you, what are your one, what's your one favorite, one or two favorites? Can, can you just describe it just so for, for everyone to hear that? I'm curious. My, mine's a short answer again. So my favorite chart is the um, it's the CPI uh, cumulative inflation over time. And it goes all the way back to like 1700 or something. And you can just see this like little line going across the screen. And then it gets to 1913, the establishment of the Federal Reserve. And that's just like our website. Like if we were if we were going to do it again, maybe WTF happened in 1913 would be good because a lot of the inflection points is going and it's hard to find data from those time periods. Sure. Uh, mm-hmm. But but a lot of inflection points start there because it's the yeah. beginning of like real, like full central banking. So like you can I'm, see- I'm like, assuming you've read The Creature from Jekyll Island. That's probably hit your- Yeah, 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 yeah. So, okay. But, yeah. but you, be, be, before that, before 1913, you can see mm-hmm. it going up and down. You can see the inflation deflation, these tiny little blooms and busts, natural market cycles. And then also like, you, you know, a, a, on top of like bank failures and gold failing, but like- gold still kind of kept us honest. And then you get to see, and then 1971 just goes off the rails. I, I love that chart because it shows like monetary history in a chart for me. So yeah, got it. Okay. Hack for you. My favorites are the ones where we commit quote unquote chart crime. Yeah. So what I mean by that is we intentionally display them linearly rather than logarithmically, because I love it when people say, you can't do that. You can't show the national debt on a linear chart. It has to be logarithmic. And I have to like sit back and be like, so why do I have to show national debt growing exponentially instead of linearly? That doesn't even make sense. Why are you telling me that that's the way I have to display it? Like, I think it's just insane. So I love the, because like I said at the very beginning, um, monetary policy by and large is downstream of fiscal policy and our government is trying to spend its way out of debt. So if you look at the U.S. national debt chart, it's my favorite one because for one, it's a linear chart and you have to like, you could, most of the time you can't even fit it on your screen. You have to like scroll to see the whole thing. And I love it because it's it's like trying to look at the Burj Khalifa. If anybody's ever been to Dubai, you have to literally crane your neck to see the top. And and unless you're at the right angle, you can't even see where the building ends. Um, and it just you have to actually stand underneath it and and physically crane your neck as far as it will go um, <laughs> to to see and, and to to have that perspective of like wow. I know that when you you see a picture or you you look at it in a book, it's big, but I had no idea it was this big. That's what it's like. That's the feeling I get when I look at that chart. Um, we have, I can't comprehend how much a trillion is. I can't even comprehend how much a billion is. I can maybe, maybe, I'm not even so sure I know what a million is, to be completely honest with you, like a million of anything. I don't know. Like, I couldn't look at that and say, oh, that looks like about a million. You know what I mean? Like, I can't comprehend a billion or a trillion. We're in so much more debt than anybody realizes. And, and I think that that chart is really important because it highlights kind of the crux of the issue, um, which is just that the governments have had the ability to, to spend more money than they should. Mm-hmm. 
we've, we've actually had people push back on that and say, but that chart isn't adjusted for inflation. I, I fucking know it's not adjusted for inflation. Yeah. That's the point. That's the point. And I'm like, I actually was on the St. Louis Federal Reserve's uh, website just yesterday looking at, you know, U.S. debt. And it's funny because like in 2008, that's when I started paying attention. It was like $8 trillion. And I remember thinking, holy shit, like $8 trillion. And then in 2010, I remember seeing the angle of it. I'm like, wait a second, this looks like it's increasing quite a lot faster. I, I, and we started uh, explaining to some people, we thought it was going to hit like, tw- you know, uh, 16 trillion or something like that. And 2020, it hit like 24 trillion. Now what we're, we're three, we're not even three years. It's like two years and a bit later. And then what are we at? 31 trillion. So I like telling people, Hey, think about it. If 10 years from today, maybe it'll triple again. So does that mean 10 years from today, the U S national federal debt is at like 91, tr- like, is that, is that where we're headed? Like if we are all sitting here today, is it 91 trillion or something? And if I'm off, is it like 60 trillion? Is that okay? You know, and that's not even with the off balance sheet stuff. So it is fascinating. One other thing I like chatting about with people, you mentioned some, one of you mentioned deflationary before is like Bitcoin's kind of deflationary. And I kind of like that because I just feel that that will produce bigger things in the world, better things in the world. Like if I'm going to separate myself from money that's deflationary, the, the the jeans I buy or the building I buy or whatever I'm going to buy with my money is going to be good quality. And I think if you look back before 1913, some of the architecture around and some of the buildings that were created, like a lot of things look better. Even the, even the picture that you guys share with the airplane, you know, that picture you guys have shared on your Twitter feed, I think multiple times or one time at least about how airplanes look yeah. before 1971, everyone's kind of sitting there with nice suits on and stuff. It just seems like it produces better things. And part of that to me could be because it's harder to separate people from the money. So you better produce good shit. Um, and I'm not sure that's kind of like thought about as much anyway. Um, if, if, and if someone's listening to this and this is all new to them, what would you encourage them to do next? Look at some of the charts on your Twitter feed. How, do, how does someone explore some of these concepts if this is all kind of new to them and they're just asking this question for the first time? What, where would you direct them? My own journey, um, you know, I would, I would say you, you've got to read books. You've got to read real books, not books that are basically New York Times articles. Like you've got to read real books, like go read treatises. And and if I know I already lost like 90% of the people listening, but it's what you got to do. If you really want to understand something, um, you know, well enough to, to make sense of it, you, you've got to read real books, go read Rothbard, go read Mises, go read Hayek, go read, um, you know, but start with something easy. Like start with like what Ben said, like uh, mm. Henry Hazlitt's uh economics in one lesson go read the creature from jekyll island those are great books go read atlas Shrugged. if you really need to read a novel if you need something fictional and you just want to like get in the mindset of understanding you know I, I could probably rant for like an hour about objectivism and how it's wrong but like that doesn't mean uh i ran didn't write a good book right so it's um just just read good books um rothbard is my personal favorite author he's led me to a lot of deep understandings of a lot of things that are really simple once you get them. Uh, And that's the thing about economics, right? Is that it's like, it's almost intuitive when you learn real economics. It's not like all this nonsense that you see with like the complicated math equations and stuff like that. It's, it's really not that it's, it's um, if you can break it down, you can break all of economics down to like a very simple transaction between two children trading marshmallows for gummy bears. Like that's economics. And you just blow that up to billions of people trading marshmallows and gummy bears all around the world. And that's, that's what economics is. Cool. And then Ben, for you, 
I guess back to back to the book you mentioned, economics in one lesson, maybe. Yeah. So I, I think understanding the economics piece of Bitcoin is is essential if if you want to be an early adopter because I think that is the way you'll get conviction. Bitcoin is a monetary technology. It is a new monetary technology. We've had previous monetary technologies, some of which have failed, many of which have failed. And now that Bitcoin exists, there's a you know computer network component of it to try to understand that. Kind of difficult, but at least straightforward. Most folks understand, okay, it's a hash function. I learned that, blah, blah, blah. The economics piece, I think, is hard for a lot of folks because I think you know we have a lot of default Keynesians in our world. And I agree with um, the heavily armed clown. If you, if you really want to understand why, why Bitcoin is, is going to change the world, you, you really need to kind of understand real economics because... Bitcoin is an, is a crypto economic uh, technology. It's mm-hmm. it's it's the marriage of incentives between the computer network and human actors, and and the, the neither one can exist on its own. It's it's this incentives system, right? Like, wh- how do we know that there will only be twenty one million? Can't you change the code? Like to be able to answer these questions, it's not just the code side; it's understanding human action. So I, I, I do recommend if, if folks really want to go down the rabbit hole, if they, you know, they, they do, do a little bit of reading and try to understand it. So, yeah, I, I, I always recommend uh, Economics in One Lesson. There's another easy one. What has government done to our money? It's a short read. I think that's Rothbard, actually, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. that's, a, that's a short read for folks as well. But um, you can reach out to us as well. And, uh, it, and if it's Bitcoin specifically that you're interested in, um, Safedine's The Bitcoin Standard is a great read. I, I don't agree with every word in it, but I hardly right. ever agree with every word in any book. Uh, <laughs> I think it's a great book. And I, I think I like Safety Dean a lot. And uh, I've also put together a website a few years ago called 10 Hours of Bitcoin, one zero hours of Bitcoin. Um, great resource. It, it'll basically get you to the point where like you can understand Bitcoin pretty well uh, yeah. with just a 10 hour investment. So that's uh, a good one. Oh, cool. Those are 10 hours of Bitcoin.com. Yep. Yep. Okay. And then, sorry, just before I let you go, um, what was the one character, like I had dismissed Bitcoin and then I figured out, I didn't know there was a 21 million cap. And I was like, oh my God, like this thing, there's a cap. Like no one told me I, I didn't get it. And then I finally took me a while to understand the value of proof of work. Like I didn't understand. Yeah. I'm like, oh, what's this proof of work? And then when I started to understand proof of work, I was like, whoa, like this is kind of blowing my mind. Was it, what, what was the characteristic of Bitcoin that really kind of flipped the switch for you? I'm, I'm curious. <laughs> Oh, my answer is easy. I, like, like, like Hack was saying, very early on, I knew about Bitcoin. I saw it on Slashdot, I think 2012. Okay. Uh, so I like read like a little bit of the white paper, at least the abstract. I read like very smart nerds talking about it. And I was like, that looks cool, but it'll probably never work. And like, you know, anyway, long story short, 2017 happened and it came back into my mind again. I'm like, oh, this thing's still around. Why does the price go up and down? That question, why does the price go up and down is what led me down the rabbit hole to like trying to watch a whole bunch of YouTube videos that were like complete, just only tra- people trading and like, oh, look at this, like, you know, Behringer bands and triangles, yeah. these triangles. <laughs> and eventually I found uh, Andreas Antonopoulos and he showed uh, the case for that this technology is technology that people need today. And it, it will free us from authoritarian governments who have too yeah, much I forgot control about his talks, yeah. because our monetary technology is so bad. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it was it. I I just one person that when I try to understand something, I, I have to go all the way deep into it. And I for some reason the why does the price go up and down? Let's like <laughs> got you. So, okay. And then hack for you. I'm curious. Um, I I struggle to point to a single moment uh, because I didn't. 
I didn't discover. So like, I think a lot of Bitcoiners, they discovered Bitcoin and then they discovered Austrian economics, but I was kind of already studying Austrian economics first. So I understood the money problem. um, And I was kind of like, oh, this technology checks all the boxes. Like this is perfect. And really it was just kind of a slow progression of conviction from this could work. Oh, here's all these other cryptocurrencies. These could work too, to wait, Mm. wait, none of these are going to work. These are all pretty much all single equities (laughs) to, okay, Bitcoin is the dominant network to literally, I believe in my mind, I I, I don't know if this is probably the right way to live, but I've always kind of been an all or nothing person. Like I believe Bitcoin is inevitable. Like I believe it will succeed. Mm. Uh, It has to succeed because if it doesn't, you know, I don't, I don't want to think about the future where it didn't. Um, But I think like the most impactful part of it for me is like thinking, it's, it's, it's really hard to comprehend because throughout Bitcoin's first decade of existence, like up until now, um, it's been actually largely inflationary. And we haven't actually yet seen um, what it's going to look like when Bitcoin is more disinflationary than like the dollar or the, than gold. Because the first four years that Bitcoin existed, um, 50% of its supply was issued. The following four years, uh, an additional 25% of supply was issued and continue that on every four years that so that issuance rate gets cut in half to where we are right now where 91.8 percent of all bitcoin that will ever be issued has already been issued uh so we have about 100 years to go for that remaining eight percent um the implications of that like are far and above yet to be seen nobody understands the truly profound implications of an actually disinflationary money um and we like even we as bitcoiners we have not yet witnessed it uh, the next having is in May of 2024, when issuance will be cut down to, uh, I think it's 3.1525 or whatever, 1.25, I don't know, three, like three and a quarter percent um, will be the next issuance cycle. For That's an entire four years, about 3% of the total supply will be issued, and then it's going to cut in half again. Uh, and that's just going to continue until there's no more Bitcoin left to be issued. Uh, like I said, we're, we're still in the early days of this rocket ship. Mm-hmm. And Guys, I, just, I really oh go ahead ben please i was, I was just gonna add one last thing because I, I probably should have said it earlier for for folks that are maybe starting down the rabbit hole and none of those other books sounded interesting an amazing book that i think ties together a few threads from this whole thing and i thought of from what what hack just said is uh, the price of tomorrow um by mm-hmm. jeff booth um which is in my opinion uh, a hardcore austrian economics text wrapped in um this just guy, the easiest yeah to understand jeff just lays out the arguments so well without any economics jargon he just says technology like ChatGPT are uh, is going to reduce prices so rapidly that if we are trying to print money to keep prices up we are going to destroy society by tearing it apart bitcoin is the only technology that can really mm-hmm. bring us back together as a society so I just want to, sorry, I just want to try. No, no, I totally appreciate it. Guys, I just, you know, you don't know me, really appreciate you doing this. There's those of us out here who really appreciate the stuff that you're putting out there. I know you're busy with your lives and this is kind of something you're kind of doing on the side, but please know that there are those of us who really appreciate what you're doing. So thank you for sharing everything that you've shared and all the data and charts. Um, I really feel like it's how we all educate and you're helping in that process. So thank you very much. Where, where should we direct people? The Twitter handle I know is at WTF underscore 1971. Anywhere else that you would like to direct people? Uh, yeah. I mean, you can reach out to me directly, you know, and clown directly too, probably I'm at 
M-R-C-O-O-L-B-P. Uh, it's hard to condense all this stuff into an hour. There's a lot of information there and that some people understand some things and some people don't. So if you just have a quick question, happy to try to answer it. Uh, I'd love to. Do that. Awesome. So, Thanks for that, Ben. Thank you. Of course. And Hack? Yeah, I'm on Twitter as well at Heavily Armed C, the letter C. Um, yeah, most people know me as Heavily Armed Clown, but like, no, I don't, you know, won't get a ton of economics discussion from me these days because I'm pretty focused <laughs> on software engineering because that's what I do full time. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I'm happy to answer DMs or whatever. People hit me up with questions all the time on Twitter. So uh, feel free. Cool. Cool. Thanks for this, guys. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. No worries. Hey, everyone. Hopefully, you enjoyed that episode. Their Twitter handles for Ben Prentice is at Mr. Cool BP. So that's at Mr. Cool BP. And I was referring to him as Hack, short for Heavily, heavily Armed Clown. His Twitter handle is at Heavily Armed C. So that's at Heavily Armed C. And then the, the, uh, the Twitter handle for their main WTF Happened in 1971 account is at WTF underscore 1971. We'll put links to all of those Twitter handles in the show notes of this episode that you can find at Rocks starinnercircle.com forward slash podcast. And if you are listening to this and you're trying to figure out if you want to add some real estate to your investing mix, you can check out all the real estate assets, reports, videos, podcasts that we have available to you at rockstarinnercircle.com. That's rockstarinnercircle.com. That's it for this episode. Until next time, your life, your terms. <laughs>